Righto. Good morning, folks. Thank you to our Bible readers. Good to be here with you uh, this morning. I didn't actually introduce myself before. Uh, I'm Dave, for anyone who might be new here or just visiting with us uh, or joining us online as well. It's good to be here with you. It's good to be able to have a look at this interesting part of the Bible together. I think it is pretty interesting. It might be familiar. It might be something that you know uh, is buried there uh, in the Scriptures. But when you stop and think about what actually happens and what it might mean, Uh, There are a lot of questions that we could have uh, about what we have just heard. Uh, Now what we should do, probably you've picked up, hopefully, that we are diving back into Luke's Gospel for our regulars who've been here uh, for a while. You might remember that before Christmas we were working our way through the opening chapters of Luke and it's probably worth just now, after a bit of a break, uh, that we remind ourselves of uh, what Luke was trying to do in writing his gospel. The opening verses to Luke's gospel are particularly important in understanding what the rest of the book is about. Now, what Luke says there is that lots of people at his time in the first century were looking to share stories about Jesus or to write about Jesus, about who he is, what he'd done, all of those kinds of things. What Luke is setting out to do, he says, is to write an orderly account an orderly account. Now, what we often focus on when we hear those words is we say, well, Luke wanted to write down all the things that were true. Luke wanted to write down the facts. And it certainly is true. I think that Luke was looking to write down everything that is true about Jesus. But Luke also says in those opening verses that he has a particular purpose in the way that he's done that. He's put it together He says, so that Theophilus, which is the name of the guy that he's writing to, it's a great name, Theophilus. You don't meet too many Theophiluses, Theophili, I don't know. Uh, Anyway, these days, but Theophilus, the person that Luke is writing to, uh, he wants him to know with certainty the things that he has been taught. He wants him to have certainty in his faith. Now, having certainty in your faith, that does mean knowing that your faith is in something that is true. It's pretty hard to believe in something that you don't think is true. Uh, He wants Theophilus to know that the gospel about Jesus is true, but particularly he wants Theophilus to have confidence in the impact of his faith. He wants Theophilus to have confidence that what Jesus has said and done has actually impacted his life and makes a difference for his standing with God and the way that he might go about his life from now on as a Christian. Luke wants the gospel to make a difference in his life. Luke wants the gospel to make a difference in our lives. This story is a part of that purpose. That's what Luke is doing here. He wants Theophilus to keep going in the way that he started. So we're jumping back into Luke chapter 4. I would encourage you, uh, if you're not familiar or if you've forgotten some of the things that happened earlier uh, in Luke's Gospel to go back and read those opening chapters. It'll be worth doing. Uh, You can also check out the uh, older talks on our website if uh, that's more your thing. Uh, It's a bit of an unfortunate break that we've had, sort of drawing that line in the sand at the end of chapter 3 and then having a break and jumping back in here because what's happening here at the start of Luke chapter 4, there is actually uh, a series of connected stories that Luke has recounted which serve together as the commissioning of Jesus for his earthly ministry. So starting back in chapter 3 with John's baptism, all the way through here to the end of temptation, these ones are preparing us to understand what Jesus' earthly ministry uh, is going to be all about. So it's a bit of a a difficult break that we've had. 
Uh, and uh, just to give um, your memories a bit of a break, in case you didn't remember everything that happened uh, in between, uh, here's how the commissioning of Jesus plays out. Now, all of these bits, remember, are significant. So it begins with John's baptism. Okay, so John comes in the wilderness with a baptism, so Luke tells us, for repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Right, that's what John's doing. John is baptizing for repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Then there is Jesus who comes along and Jesus is baptized by John, presumably not for repentance and the forgiveness of sins uh, because Jesus has done nothing to repent of uh, and has no sins to forgive. Uh, and so he comes down rather than doing that for himself to identify with the people who do need those things. So John is announcing God's forgiveness. John is announcing the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus comes along with the crowd uh, as a way of identifying with those people who are coming to God. But as he does so, he sees the heavens open, he sees the Spirit come down on him like a dove, and he hears God's voice announcing that Jesus is his Son. Not just in the sense that, you know, we're all God's children, though that is true. You read through the Bible, you'll find that it tells us that uh, all people are God's children. Uh, but in a specific way, Jesus is the one and only Son of God, made, uh, or sorry, not made, uh, he is God made flesh. Uh, what I'm trying to say there. Uh, so Jesus is both one of the people, but he's also God. He's also God made flesh. And then strangely, at this point, with this great divine revelation, the story takes a detour and Luke decides to give us Jesus' genealogy. Uh, you may remember that. He goes back generation by generation, all the way back through Adam to God. And then suddenly, at the end of the genealogy, we read that Jesus is taken out into the wilderness and tested by the devil. And you might look at that and say, okay, there are four very different things happening there. There's John baptizing people uh, in the River Jordan. There is the heaven opens uh, and the Spirit comes down on Jesus. There is a genealogy. We read just, you know, 70 generations or something like that, one after the other. And then there is the devil appearing to Jesus out in the wilderness while he's fasting. What do these stories possibly have to do with one another? Well, here's how they fit together. John's mission, John the Baptist, John in chapter 3, who's out there baptising people in the River Jordan, uh, John came to announce a problem and a solution. Right? So John's baptism is about repentance and John's baptism is for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance, the idea of repentance, tells us that there's a problem. It tells us that there's a problem because if there wasn't a problem, if everything was fine and nothing, we'd never done anything wrong, then we have nothing to repent of. It also tells us that there's a solution because if there is no solution, if we have done so much wrong and we were unforgivable, then there is no point repenting because we can't be forgiven. So why even bother trying? So in John announcing a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, what John is saying is, hey, look, there is a problem in this world. There is a problem in the way that we relate to God. But he's also saying God has a solution. John doesn't claim to be the solution. He's not suggesting that his baptism in the Jordan is the solution, but he's pointing us towards the solution. And then Jesus appears. It's in the context of that announcement that 
God has a solution for the problems that are plaguing the world, that Jesus is commissioned, that Jesus walks onto the stage. And it's that announcement that he is God's son, but also fully human uh, at the same time, which is particularly relevant for understanding this last part of Jesus' commissioning, the temptation in the wilderness. Now, those two things are incredibly important to us, that Jesus is the Son of God, but also that Jesus is fully human and that both of those things are true. Uh, I'm emphasising that a lot because I think as Christians, we have a tendency to downplay either one or the other, depending on the way that you're wired. But I think a lot of the time, Christians have issues with the idea that Jesus was fully human, that Jesus was fully like one of us. Uh, It may be just because it's a really difficult concept to have that Jesus could be both God and human at the same time. That's fair enough. It's possibly because God is meant to be somehow bigger, somehow more other, more different uh, from what we're like. And the idea of God being limited into the kind of person that you and me are uh, is something that we really find difficult uh, to wrestle with. It might be something like that, that God would be someone who got hungry, who had to sleep, Uh, That makes us a little bit uncomfortable. We get uncomfortable with a Jesus who is too human. Uh, And you start to see our difficulties with Jesus as a human when we start to ask questions like, well, was it even possible for Jesus to sin? You know, we're talking about the temptation, but could Jesus sin? Could Jesus actually do the wrong thing? You know, because there's a part of us that wants to say no. There's a part of us that wants to say, Jesus is perfect. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus couldn't possibly ever do the wrong thing because he's the son of God. But if that's true, then the temptation that we just read about in Luke chapter 4 is meaningless. Because if Jesus cannot sin, then what's the devil trying to convince him to do? Something that he can't, so it's a waste of time. He's just going through the motions. And if Jesus couldn't sin, then how does the fact that he stood up to temptation help us to stand up to temptation? How could it mean anything to us unless that temptation was genuine? See, Jesus was God, but Jesus was also human, just like you and me. Now, it might sound like we're splitting theological hairs, but it's important for us to grasp that Because we need to understand the humanity of Jesus to understand how he stands in our place. For Jesus to be human means that Jesus was tempted in the same way that we are tempted. Now, you know about temptation. You know what temptation is like. No matter where you stand with God, whether you're someone who identifies as a Christian and is looking with all of your might to follow Jesus or whether you're someone who's just exploring these things uh, for the first time. Nonetheless, you know how temptation works. Temptation is when you feel the desire to do something that you know Christians or whoever are not meant to do. And when you are tempted... Right? It's not just an exercise. You're not just going through the motions. You're not just thinking like, oh, well, probably shouldn't do this. Oh, well, I'll go and do it anyway. Or just thinking like, well, oh, look, you know, we're a bit tempted, but it doesn't actually impact me in any way. It's a real struggle. Temptation is about fighting against that desire to know, uh, to not to do something or say something uh, that you know you don't deep down want to do. 
Uh, it was exactly the same for Jesus. These temptations are in, incredibly real. And these temptations in the bigger picture are just a prelude to those temptations that would come his way uh, in the final chapters of the gospel as people began to say to him, come down from the cross. If you're really the son of God, then prove it by saving yourself. Or in Gethsemane, isn't there another way? Jesus stood firm in the face of very real temptation. And in fact, the gospel, what we will find as we look back, hinges on the fact that Jesus, as the representative of all people, stood firm in the face of temptation, in the way that no one before or after him ever has. And so as we face those same struggles, we find our connection to this story as well. So let's take a look then at Luke chapter 4 before we drill down into how that hooks in to our lives. So here's Luke chapter 4. Here's the big picture uh, of what's happening. Now you know uh, straight away as we read uh, verse 1, if you've got chapter 3, you've got the baptism and all those other things in your head, you see that connection that Luke has made. He's he's whacked the genealogy in there at the end of chapter 3, but chapter 4 opens up by saying uh, that Jesus is full of the Spirit and leaving the Jordan, which is exactly where we left him at his baptism. The Spirit descended upon him and he was coming up out of the River Jordan. So you get this idea that despite the genealogy, Luke is just continuing the action straight on uh, from where he was. And he says that he's led out into the wilderness for this period of testing. Now, it's a familiar sort of idea in some ways, but it's a bit weird at the same time. This story is strange. It is a strange story when we think about it in terms of the reality in which you and I live. Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days, fasting and being tempted by the devil. Now, Luke only records three things that Jesus and the devil uh, spoke about. So either uh, the devil is incredibly repetitive uh, or perhaps Luke has cut it down a bit for space and it's a big idea uh, rather than the full story. So what's actually happening here? What is this story all about? Why does Jesus do this uh, as a way of beginning his ministry? Well, we see in this story of Jesus and the devil echoes from Israel's history, right? Not just as a history lesson, but echoes of the reality of the impact of sin uh, in their lives. So 40 days that Jesus is in the wilderness being tested should make us think, if we're familiar with our Old Testament, it's okay if we're not, uh, but it makes us think of the 40 years that Israel spent in the wilderness being tested. And you can't think of Israel's time in the wilderness after the Exodus without being reminded of their failure. That was the other reading that we had from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that really recounted uh, some of that story and we'll have a look at that in just a minute. But what that points us back to is the fact that in their time in the wilderness, Israel spent their entire lives complaining, grumbling and giving in to whatever temptation uh, might come their way. And so there is a significance in what's happening here because you've got Israel from the very beginning who gave in to temptation, who turned away from the way that God had called them to live. Every single generation since then have lived in exactly the same way. We've been reminded of those generations in the genealogy of Jesus. And then along comes Jesus, who is set aside 
by a magnificent divine sign from God involving a river and the Holy Spirit. And then he goes out into the wilderness and it straight away uh, brings to mind those echoes of Deuteronomy 8. Uh, Moses in Deuteronomy 8 summarizes Israel's time in the wilderness by saying, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what is in your heart whether or not you would keep his commands. So what's happening with Jesus in the wilderness in Luke chapter 4? He is being humbled and tested in order that God might know what is in his heart, whether or not Jesus will keep his commands. Israel failed. Every generation since Israel failed. What is going to happen now? Uh, This, we will see the echoes in Jesus' temptations of that experience, and we will see that Jesus stands where they didn't. And then having done that, having stood up to temptation in a way that no one before or after him had, then he will begin his earthly ministry. Then he will begin calling disciples to himself. Then he will begin to build a new people of God. And that's where we come in. Because it's not just a random, strange 2,000-year-old story. This is the story of how Jesus begins to build the people of God. And this is how we see the hero of the story standing in a way that we cannot. And in fact, the reason that we had that reading from 1 Corinthians 10 is to precisely link us back into that past failure uh, of Israel. Because in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul, writing there, looks back to the Exodus and he makes exactly that connection. He looks back to the temptation that Israel went through in the wilderness uh, and Paul says, this is our test, right? This is not just a history lesson. This is what we face. Uh, In verse 6, Paul says, these things happened as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Right? They are an example for us so that we don't repeat their mistakes. And then in verse 11, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the, angels, uh, the ages had come. This is not just an academic exercise looking back at an old test. This is the same tempting and testing that every generation faces. And he finishes to drive that home with a warning and an encouragement. He has a warning for those believers, because Paul writes to believers, who might think that they are somehow better than Israel, that they are better than the generations who've gone before. See, Paul says to the Corinthians, if you think you are standing firm, by which he means if you think that you are good enough through your own efforts that you don't have to worry about this, then be careful that you don't fall. Because if you stand in your own strength, you only have your own strength. But then he gives an encouragement to those of us who might feel nervous. So he then says in verse 13, uh, in contrast, if you're someone who is plagued with self-doubt, if you worry that uh, you always give in to temptation, that you'll never overcome this, he says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out 
so that you can endure it. And what we're going to see this morning in Jesus' temptation in the wilderness is that God has done exactly that, that we don't stand or fall in our own strength. The moral of this story, the application of this story is not stand up to temptation like Jesus. It's to look to the only one who ever has and to find our hope in him. So let's take a look at that story. So there's Jesus, start of Luke chapter 4. He's out there in the wilderness. He's being tested. It's not just about him, uh, though, of course, as we've seen with all the build-up to this point, he is both the Son of God, he is fully human, he is the best of us, right? So if you take all of humanity from the very beginning until now, Jesus is the very best, and this is a little bit of a mathematics lesson, you know, when you said, when am I ever going to use this in the real world? Right now is the answer. If you take the very best, and if the very best fails, what does that tell you about everything else? It tells you that everything else is going to fail as well. So Jesus is the best of us. If Jesus cannot stand up to temptation, there is no hope for any of us. That's the moral of this story. It's like watching the hero step out on the stage for the decisive battle. It's stand or fall. If he wins, we win. If he loses, there is no hope. That's how important this story is to us. And so he's in the wilderness And he's tempted by the devil. Here's temptation number one. Now, if you imagine all of the things in the world that Satan might offer you by way of temptation, how about this one? If you are the son of God, turn this stone to bread. Perhaps that's not uh, the most tempting thing for you right now. You know, you probably wouldn't sell your soul for a loaf of bread in this moment. But let's remember, Jesus has been in the wilderness fasting for 40 days. Right? And in verse 2, uh, it says he'd been fasting for 40 days and he was hungry, which has to be probably the biggest understatement uh, that I've ever come across. And so the devil says to him, if you're the son of God, use that power uh, to make some bread. Make yourself some food. Why not? It's just a stone, turn it into bread. I mean, after all, when Israel was in the wilderness, God gave them manna to eat. God wanted them to be fed. What about you? Uh, the implication of what Jesus responds of why this is a temptation is that Jesus' sonship, his faithful sonship, is reflected in his obedience to God. He is going to do things in God's way, uh, not through those other voices that he might hear. See, and in fact, the manna story actually helps us understand that, doesn't it? Because God said to Israel in the wilderness, look, I'm going to feed you every day. And as a way of showing that you trust that I'm going to feed you every day, I want you only to collect enough for that day. Right? So that's what Israel would do. They would go out in the morning, they would collect enough manna for that day and that day only, and that's what they would eat for the day. And in fact, when they said, hey, look, we could save a bit of time here, we could collect ourselves enough for a few days and then store it so that we don't have to you know, worry about whether it's going to be there or not, what they found is that it spoiled, it went bad, and it was inedible uh, afterwards. The point was God wanted them to grow in their trust in him. Uh, and for Jesus, it's exactly the same. That's what's happening here. He's demonstrating his trust in God. And you see that uh, in the quote that he responds. He says that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And we think, okay, well, that's you know, it's a very Jesus-sounding response, uh, but the passage he's quoting from is precisely that one in Deuteronomy 8 where Moses has just said to the people, remember 
that God humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus' response is, I'm not going to trust in you. I am not going to panic about the provision of God, uh, but I will trust him. I will rely on God. Now, it's not just empty words. It's not just religious-sounding language. Uh, These are not the words of a bunch of rich, well-fed people saying, yes, man does not live on bread alone before tucking into a massive feast. This is words spoken to a group of people who have been humbled in walking in the desert for 40 years. And it's the words of a man who's been fasting for 40 days. Dependence on God means something. Dependence on God costs something. That's Jesus' first temptation. And then there's a second one. Jesus is taken and he's shown all of the kingdoms of the world uh, with the offer that everything you see is yours, right? All you have to do, the devil says, is bow down and worship me and everything is yours. All of the kingdoms of the earth. No fight, no struggle, no pain, no cross. All you have to do, the devil says, is worship me. And here's the thing, Jesus says in Deuteronomy 6, again, quoting Deuteronomy, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now what's happening here? This is not just saying like, oh, you're only meant to worship God because that's the good, righteous Christian thing to do. What Jesus is recognising is that whatever authority there is in the world, whether it's human authority or even the authority of the devil in this story, is derived from God. Right? There is no authority we will ever face that is not below the authority that is possessed by God. Now, in this world, in this time, you know, the devil has some power to act. We're going to see that through the rest of the gospel. We're going to see that the devil is not just a concept uh, as we read through the gospels, that he has some power to act. Jesus calls him the prince of this world in John's gospel, which is a way of saying, yeah, he actually does have some power to act. And so this is not an empty promise being made that the kingdoms will be yours, uh, but Jesus recognised that ultimately, while the devil may have been given some temporary power to act, ultimately it belongs to God. And so what is right is to recognise God's authority and to obey him, even though it's tougher in the short term. Because that's the thing, isn't it? What does the devil offer Jesus? He offers Jesus what God has told him is going to belong to him, right? Because that's the whole point. Go back and read the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. What do they say? They say that all of the kingdoms of the earth will come to serve him. Satan's saying, look, we can bring God's plan about, but why don't you do it my way? It's going to hurt less. It's going to be more fun. But Jesus chooses obedience to God. He turns his back on the easy way and goes down the path of the cross. And then there's the third temptation. Jesus has chosen obedience, chosen God's way twice. The final temptation, the devil takes him up on the highest place of the temple and challenges him to prove it, right? All you have to do is show that you are God's son. You want people to believe that you are God's son. That's why you're here, presumably. So prove it. Throw yourself off the temple. Have God spare your life. There's a big crowd down there. They'll be amazed. They'll worship you. They'll do anything that you want them to do. And the devil even quotes the Bible to try to get Jesus to do this, which should be a bit of a wake-up call to Christians who like to grab single verses out of context to try to prove the points that we're wanting to make. But Jesus' response is to say, don't put God to the test. 
right? His response is not about the power of God. He's not saying God doesn't work that way. God's not going to, you know, dive in and stop me. That's not his job. Uh, What he's saying is it's wrong to try to force God's hand. And we might see this in our own experience when we try to do things like say, well, you know, I don't know whether this is really what God wants me to do, but I'm just going to punch down that line anyway. And if God really wants to stop me, uh, he can stop me. Jesus calls us to obedience, to seek out how he would have us live, uh, not just assume that God will pick us up and put us back on the path. And so the devil gives up. Those are his three temptations, three temptations towards unfaithfulness, three temptations to test God and to turn away from the obedience of his sonship. And so the devil leaves until an opportune time, it says, which we'll find later on, will be right before the cross, uh, before that final test. So what do we do with all this? That is the story of Jesus uh, and the devil out in the wilderness. I want to say a couple of things about what we will do with this story, what we can do with this story uh, before we finish up our time here uh, this morning. Uh, First of all, I think one thing that we need to do as we read this story is to respect the fact that both Luke and Jesus have no problem whatsoever in acknowledging the spiritual, the supernatural. I think it's important. I think it's important for us to start there because I think our temptation as Western Christians is that we feel like we are far too clever to believe in supernatural things like being tempted uh, by the devil. See, our culture has not only separated the spiritual from the physical, we've kind of reduced the idea of spirituality to this thing that can fit inside our heads. When we say someone has spiritual beliefs, what we normally mean is, well, they just believe some things to be true in their head. There's no universal value or reality that's happening to it. That's what most people mean uh, within Australian culture. For example, we know that miracles don't happen as modern Australians because we have the laws of physics, which don't allow for miracles. But the thing is, that's entirely the point. The whole point of the miraculous, the whole point of the supernatural is that God is able to act in a way uh, that goes against what we would normally see or understand. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a miracle. We should acknowledge the reality of the supernatural, not in a way that makes us afraid. Uh, The point is not that we would uh, fear that, uh, but in a way that helps us to trust in God. Uh, We do need to appreciate that it's real. I don't imagine that the devil is going to take you on top of uh, a mountain and demand that you throw yourself off from it. Uh, But I wonder, as we heard this read out, uh, how many of us felt that it felt like a bit of a fable? You know, how many of us thought that it felt a little bit like one of those, you know, Greek mythology stories where we sort of think, well, that's, that's lovely sounding, like, you know, Icarus flying too close to the sun, but it didn't really happen. It's just a moral to help us uh, to believe in something. The point is not that we read this and we're afraid of the devil, but the point is that we should read this and acknowledge that this is real. Uh, it's important that we know that because we also want to know that Christ is triumphant over the forces of evil. Temptation is real and obedience is significant. Obedience is about our relationship with God and about turning away from what is evil. That is a significant thing for us to believe, even if it's difficult uh, in our modern culture. And the second thing that we need to do, first of all, having acknowledged the reality of what's happening here, is to recognise this is our temptation. 
See, this is why it's been so important and so significant for us to have that build-up uh, to the idea that Jesus was both God, the Son of God, God made flesh, but also fully human, uh, just like that, because he comes in to fight the battle that we failed. His story is tied in for two hours. He is the one who was able to stand against temptation in a way that we could not. Uh, This is the story of the curse. This is the story of the fall in Genesis 3, the brokenness of the world. The whole world uh, is affected by sin uh, and we, we need this way out. Uh, Now, way back in Deuteronomy, uh, in those passages that we were looking at, uh, those passages that Jesus has been quoting, the people were looking forward to the promised land. The people were looking to the promised land as the place where all of that wrong in the world was going to be made right, where the suffering of 40 years in the wilderness could be left behind them. Now, when Moses spoke to that generation about obedience, that's why it was so important. Because you know what had happened to the last generation who weren't obedient? They all died and they were all left behind in the wilderness and they never got to know rest. They never got to know peace. And so Moses says to them, look, you guys might want to learn from their example uh, if you want to enter into this land and be obedient to God. Why? Because the threat is that it could all happen again. Uh, In Hebrews, one of the New Testament letters, uh, the writer says that the Christian life uh, is an experience where we're still in the wilderness. Because that's true, isn't it? Right? If the promised land is the place where all that is wrong in the world is taken away and that we can fully enjoy the perfection of God, well, we're not there. That's not our experience today. That's not what's going on right now. Just ask around what's happening uh, in the life of our church. Ask about the pain, the suffering, the sickness, the things that are going on in our church family, let alone the world around us. We're not there yet. And so the point is, press on. The point is keep going. The point is stand firm. Remember Luke's purpose that you might know with confidence the certainty of the hope to which you've been called. So keep going because we are looking at the object of our hope. We might not stand, but there is one who has. And contrary to what we might often think, perseverance looks like obedience. Now, this is a bit of a difficult one for us sometimes, I think, that uh, we talk about grace in the church and we talk about the freedom uh, that the gospel has won for us. But it's a bit weird, isn't it, that then Jesus says, well, what does freedom look like? What does the free gift of grace look like? Follow me. Be obedient. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my command. So what's he doing? Why does he tell us what to do if we've genuinely been set free by the gospel? I think the best way to think about it is that Jesus calls us to be obedient to him because we're not yet perfected uh, to obey him, to be in that freedom relationship with him later. It's a little bit like rehab, right? Um, Not the drug rehab kind, but the if you've just had major surgery rehab kind. Just, Just checking in case, you know, I don't know where people's Minds are going when I say rehab. But if you imagine you've just had major surgery, right? You've just had major surgery. Say you've had, I don't know, you've had a knee replacement done or something like that. Uh, You don't just have surgery, right? Wake up, leap off the table and start running around, do you? There is a significant period of recovery where you need to work out how to walk again, how to do uh, any of that again. This is what's happening when Jesus calls us to be obedient. 
We're not replacing one law with another law. We've been set free from trying to stand in our own strength so that we might stand in his, but we're not ready for that freedom yet. We haven't seen everything made perfect. There still remains a rest for God's people. We won't see that until he comes again. See, Paul describes it in similar terms in 1 Corinthians. He describes it a bit like growing up, right? He kind of says, now I'm like a child, but then I will be fully grown. Then I will be able to live. Then I will be able to know God, even as I'm known by God. We respond with obedience, not because we're trying to make ourselves good by standing up to temptation, because we know we can't. We respond with obedience because we rejoice in the one who has and we trust that we have a certain hope in him, that we will be made right. And really, that's the most important thing that we take from Luke chapter 4. Obedience helps us, obedience guides us, but obedience doesn't save us. That's the last thing we need to take. That's the most important thing that we take from this story. You see, a great tragedy for Christians is that too often we talk about the grace of the gospel and then we jump straight back into more laws. We jump straight back into conditional statements of, well, if you want God to love you, then really you should live like this. If you want to be a good Christian, then you should go and do these things, right? We want to be obedient. We want to live the way that God has called us. But one thing that you can't miss in this story of Luke is that there is only one saviour. Obedience is helpful because when we are obedient, we are listening to the one who loves us more than anything else, who loves us with an unconditional love. But being a good little obedient Christian won't save us. The only thing that can save us is the victory of the king, the one who stood where we can't, the one who after countless failures resisted temptation, took that punishment on himself and gave us that gift of life. Why don't we look to him and pray? Father, we do thank you uh, for the gospel. Uh, We thank you for Luke. Uh, We thank you for those who, uh, before Luke, might have attempted to write those things down or pass on what they had seen. And we thank you that Luke was able to gather that and that we can read those words today. We pray that you would use them to give us confidence Uh, Not confidence that we're good enough people to make you happy in our own strength, but confidence that you came as one of us, uh, that in him we might live. So we thank you for Christ. We thank you for his death on the cross. We thank you for his rising to new life. And we pray that we see ourselves in all of those things, uh, that we'll find our hope in him and that we will look with longing for that day when all will be made right. We pray that you'll help us to live obediently to you now Uh, But most of all, we pray that we would long for that day when we won't need rules uh, because we will know you and be with you forevermore. And we pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.